Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 191. It's titled, Has the Bond Bear Market Begun? Bond Bear Market. That was a phrase five, ten years ago you never heard of. Bear markets usually are focused on the stock market, and a bear market is generally, there's not an exact definition, but typically losses of 20% or more are considered a bear market-type losses. Search activity on Google for the term bond bear market is up fivefold since the beginning of 2018. Ray Dalio, founder of the hedge fund Bridgewater Associates, one of the largest hedge funds in the world, is also author of the book Principles. Excellent, excellent book. He says the bear market for bonds has already begun. His quote is, a 1% rise in bond yields will produce the largest bear market in bonds that we have seen since 1980 and 81. Could we get a 20% loss? In bonds? Well, if you own 10-year treasury bonds, they have an interest rate sensitivity or duration of nine years, which means if interest rates go up by 1%, then the price of those bonds fall by nine. So if rates would go up 25 to 3%, you could see a price decline of more than 20%. Now, you're also getting the interest payment, so that mitigates that loss to some extent. But it is, is possible, except most of us don't own nine-year duration bond portfolio. We're in perhaps something like the Vanguard Total Bond Market Index Fund. That has a duration of six years, which means rates would have to go up by three and a half to four percentage points in order to suffer a 20% loss. Today, though, we want to look at bonds, bond bear markets, because in reality, people are freaking out a little bit. Stock market yesterday fell over 4% in the U.S., fell around the world. Why? Well, people are concerned. Period. I mean, you never know. Somebody asked me, did the did stock market really fall because the unemployment report or the employment report showed that wages in the U.S., hourly wages grew at a rate, fastest rate since really 2009. Is that what spawned it? We never really know. But given the amount of search activity on bear market and bonds, the fact that interest rates for the 10-year treasury have gone, have gone from around 2.45 up to 2.85, they fell back closer to 2.7% with the sell-off yesterday. But it's important to understand what 
drives interest rates? How high could they get? And what are the ramifications of that? Now, the bear market in bonds, if we're going to say, when was the absolute bottom? That was June 2016, early July, early July. So right after the Brexit vote, the 10-year Treasury was yielding 1.37%. Now it's yielding 2.85%. The annualized return over that roughly 18-month period has been about 4.5%, negative 45 to 5%, negative 5% annualized. I want to dissect the bond market today. And the analogy I thought of is an apple. An apple, you can cut vertically and look at it that way. You can cut it horizontally. You can cut it in the way that I've cut it since I was six or five, whenever my parents let me use a knife so that you separate out the core because I was taught if you ate apple seeds, you would die because it's cyanide. And I actually looked it up. So it's great to have the internet. I can look this up. Apparently, apple seeds contain amygdalin, A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-I-N, which can interact with your digestive enzyme and indeed produce cyanide. But you have to eat 200 seeds. I think I maybe swallowed one or two in my life. We're going to look at interest rates, and we're going to look at it. And the simplest way to cut this apple of interest rates is really, so right now we have the nominal yield on the 10-year treasury. We're going to base it on earlier this week, so it was 2.85%. We can separate that out into two components, the inflation expectations and what's called the real rate, which is really your return after inflation. And the way that that's done is just look at the the yield on treasury inflation protection securities and compare that to nominal yields. So at a 2.885% nominal yield, the real yield on the 10-year tip is 0.7%. And, and you back out 0.7 from 2.85, and that gives a 10-year inflation expectation that's priced in the bonds right now of 2.1%. Now, let's go back to that 1.37% July 2016 nominal yield. At that time, the real yield on Treasury Inflation Protection Securities at 10-year was, was essentially zero, really about negative 0.03%. So no real yield irrespective. So if you bought that tip, your return potentially was just whatever inflation end up coming in at because that's what an inflation protected bond is it 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 gets adjusted based on the rate of inflation so the inflation expectation then was 1.4% so since this bottom of of the the bond market we have seen the inflation expectation go from 1.4 up to about 2.1% and the real rate go from essentially 0 to 0.7%. So that's what has caused this roughly 1.4% increase in the, the nominal bond yield. Now, the question is, how much higher could it be? And to understand that, we have to slice this interest rate apple 
in a different way. This one's a little more complicated because you can't observe it directly. We can observe the nominal yield. We can observe the, the real yield price in the tips. But this way of slicing the apple, we're going to decompose that nominal yield into the expected path of future short-term interest rates and a term premium. So those are the two components. The expected path of short-term rates going out into the future and something called a term premium. If you bought a 10-year treasury bond today, let's say it was yielding 2.85%, if you held it to maturity, your return would be 2.85% annualized over that decade. But you could also buy a five-year bond, hold it to maturity, and then once you got that principal back, buy another five-year bond. Or you could buy a series of one-year bonds and keep rolling them over. Or 30-day paper, 30-day notes from the treasury. Just roll them over 30 days. The point is there's a linkage between short-term rates and long-term rates. And it's based on the expectation of what those rates, those short-term rates will be in the future because a 10-year bond can be made up of a bunch of 30-year papers just rolled over and over into the future. The Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve board members and the, and the presidents of the Federal Reserve banks, they do an estimate of what they believe short-term interest rates will be in terms of the federal funds rate. You might have heard of the term the dot plot, where the Federal Reserve, in their December meeting, the median estimate for short-term rates was 2.1% in 2018, 2.7% in 2019, 3.1% in 2020, and longer term, 2.8%. Now, there was a range around that, so I'm just giving you the median. But that's their expectation of short-term rates in the future, the future path of short-term interest rates. And from that future path, either from the Federal Reserve Board or from other economists, we can project out what the yield curve will look like in terms of, or what it looks like today. The yield curve being just plotting a graph of the 30-day paper, one-year bonds, two-year, three-year, five, 10-year. That 10-year bond is made up of, that yield today is made up, what does the market expect short-term rates to be in the future? If someone was going to keep rolling over a 30-day paper instead of buying that 10-year bond. So that analysis is done, looking at the expectations from the Federal Reserve, other economists. Sometimes they can do it. The Federal Bank of New York, or the Federal Reserve Bank of New York uses statistical analysis. But they figure out, well, what rates on the 10-year treasury should be based on that expectation of future short-term interest rates? But current rates don't always match those expectations. There's an additional term premium, an additional risk compensation. Because if investors are worried that that path of future short-term interest rates is uncertain, that the Fed could raise rates more aggressively, 
or that inflation could come in higher than expectations, they want to be compensated for that, particularly if they own longer-term bonds that are more sensitive to rises in interest rates. So the term premium is that compensation. The compensation that those short-term yields won't evolve as expected. That inflation will come in higher than anticipated and to compensate for that interest rate risk. Here's how former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke put it. Quote, all else equal, term premiums on longer-term securities will be higher when investors are more risk-averse or the perceived risk of holding those securities is high. Historically, the most important risk for long-term bondholders has been the risk of unexpected inflation. We talked about inflation in last week's episode. Investors want to be compensated for that unexpected inflation, something that surprises the market. And that compensation is that term premium, that additional yield above and beyond what current expectations are for the future path of short-term interest rates. Bernanke pointed out that the term premiums were very low in the 1960s. Then they peaked in the late, 19, late 1970s and 80s because of the risk, that, that uncertainty. This term premium is countercyclical. When there's high amount of uncertainty about what the Federal Reserve will do in the future, what inflation will be, then investors demand compensation for that. In 1981, at the top of when interest rates, I mentioned rates over 10%, that term premium was 5%. Now it's negative. And it has been negative. Investors, despite the sell-off in the stock market this week, and the fact that rates have risen from that bottom in July 2016 through today, the term premium is negative. They're not expecting that compensation, which means that the rate, the, the increase in interest rates has been primarily just an increase in expectations in terms of what investors believe that future path of short-term interest rates will be. Or if we slice the apple the other way, just their inflation expectations have increased as we've seen that. And, and that's what's going on. We're at negative, essentially negative term premium right now. Historically, going back to 1962, it's averaged 1.6%. Now that we've looked at two ways to dissect interest rates, to decompose them into their underlying components, the question is, in a bond bear market, how high could interest rates go? And what would have to happen to those underlying components in order for rates to rise significantly? Before I answer that, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. 
It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. I mentioned how nominal interest rates now, 10-year treasury is about 2.85% in the U.S. 0.7% real, 2.1% inflation expectation. What, what could change to raise those rates? Well, inflation expectations could go higher or investors could demand more of a real yield. And why would they want a higher real yield? Gets back to this term premium. They want more compensation for the risk that inflation will come in higher than expected or that the future path of short-term interest rates will be higher than anticipated. They want to hedge it. In July 2006, the 10-year Treasury yield was 5.15%. There was a 2.7% real yield, 2.5% expected inflation. So these, those, that's how those components work together. Another way to look at it is right now, the expected path of short-term interest rates, doing a statistical regression analysis, linear regression, this is an exercise the New York Federal Reserve Bank does, based on that short-term path of future rates, the expectation, 10-year treasury should be yielding 3.1%. But I mentioned how there's a negative term premium right now, so the rates are actually 2.85%. What if investors demanded a term premium of 1.6%, the historical average? The risk-neutral rate for the 10-year Treasury right now, just based on the expected path of future short-term interest rates, is 3.1%. We add that 1.6% term premium, we're at a 4.7% rate. So the reality is, Nominal interest rates for 10-year treasuries, a 4 to 4.5% is reasonable, could happen. And, and that would be part of this bond bear market. Now, things could completely go off the rails and we could have higher inflation. The mindset of investors could change, as we talked about last week in episode 190, where we can get even higher rates. But it has to be changes in the underlying components. Which brings us to the third way to slice up this interest rate apple. Supply and demand. J.P. Morgan estimates that in 2018, the U.S. Treasury will issue $1.3 trillion of Treasury bonds. 
net new issuance, that the national debt will increase by $1.3 trillion. That's double the rate of 2017 and the most since 2010. So you have this new supply of debt that has to be bought by the market. At the same time, the Federal Reserve is reducing the amount that it's purchasing. It's not, at this point, it has over $4 trillion of U.S. Treasury bonds, agency and mortgage-backed securities. And as those bonds have been maturing, the Federal Reserve has been reinvesting all the principal in new bonds. And now they're cutting back to where over the next year, their bond holdings should shrink by about 10%, $400 billion less bonds. So less demand from the Federal Reserve. Now, the European Central Bank continues with their quantitative easing, as does the Japanese Central Bank. But even the European Central Bank estimates it will potentially reduce the amount that it's purchasing each month by half. And so the central banks have been less accommodative. So this this is where we have this, you know, how much new issuance there? Who's going to buy the new issuance? Another issue, though, is what are yields in the U.S. relative to other countries? It's a global marketplace. Investors are going to go where they can get attractive yields. Right now, the German bond, the German essentially treasury bond, is yielding 2.1% more than U.S. treasuries, the 10-year treasuries. That's this highest incremental yield for U.S. treasuries over the bond since 1988. So that kind of puts a ceiling on it too. And so there's all these factors that impact interest rates, which is why it's so hard to predict. What do we do about it? Well, I talked about this in episode 133, four things you can do in the face of rising interest rates, a bond bear market. One is reduce the interest rate sensitivity of your portfolio. I mentioned how the Vanguard Total Bond Market Index Fund has a duration of six years. It's yielding 2.5% or so. Probably a little higher now because rates have gone up. But there are other options out there on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. There's a short-term bond fund in the model portfolios. It's the iShares Short Maturity Bond ETF. Its duration or interest rate sensitivity is about 0.6 years. So it's not. As the bond market has, rates have gone up, the overall bond market, as represented by the Vanguard Total Bond Market Index Fund, has declined 1.5%. That iShares ETF is up about 0.2%. So it's, it's yield to maturity, it's SEC yields about 1.8%. So not as high as the overall bond market, but not the interest rate sensitivity. Another thing you can do, and, and members of the Money for the Rest of Us Plus have done some of this, is buy do a laddered bond portfolio. So they buy a bond that matures in two years, and they'll buy another one that might mature in three years or four years, and then they're going to reinvest those. So they hold them to maturity, and they lock in those yields. In episode 133, we talked about doing that with bullet ETFs. That's another way to do that. You can hold variable rate bonds, but there you need to be 
cognizant of, of the risk because a lot of variable rate bonds in terms of bank loans and other type of strategies, they're non-investment grade bonds. And so the, another aspect that we don't have time to talk about today is the incremental yield advantage, the spread of how much you're getting paid to take on credit risk, the potential of default, and that compensation, investor can demand more compensation for credit risk, and that would cause corporate bond or non-investment grade bond yields to rise. Another thing we can do is invest in sort of private fixed income investments. Wonder Capital is an example of that. Those that those loans are not marked to market, so they don't the value doesn't go up and down based on interest rates. You just collect your interest payments and hopefully they're in the principal and hopefully there's no defaults. Now, markets are swooning. They're getting worried about these changes in interest rates. The story, the narrative potentially is changing. And one of the concerns is if rates go up, what will the impact be on other asset classes? Last week, we talked about during periods of higher inflation, the price-to-earnings ratio for stocks, the, the, do, the amount that investors are willing to pay for dollars' worth of earnings go down. Higher the rates, higher the inflation, lower the P.E. And so all types of asset classes are, are priced based off of prevailing interest rates. And potentially, as rates go up, their value could drop. Not absolutely certain because rising interest rates could be because the economy is growing faster, which means corporate profitability is increasing. So these are all different things in which we have to kind of monitor rates, investment conditions, and, and potentially adjust. The other thing that we have to recognize is what will the impact be on the economy of rising interest rates. Because one of the things that we've seen since the early 80s, when rates were last really, really high, and now they've, they've been falling, and potentially now they're going back up, is the amount of debt, private debt, of households and businesses. In 1981, world private domestic non-financial debt, so it doesn't include banks, just private businesses and households, as a percent of GDP, the total debt was 100%. As of June 2017, it's 155%. So 50% more. And it's higher than it was following the Great Recession. You had a little bit of deleveraging, but now... It got as low as 141%, but now it's 155%, so a lot of debt. And the issue is, as rates go up, will households and businesses struggle to be able to service that debt as rates go up? Their payments will potentially go up. Developed markets, the debt levels have actually decreased since the Great Recession, they were 168% developed markets in 2009. Now they're 159%. So you've seen some deleveraging in the developed markets, but there's been more than overtaken by emerging markets. Emerging market private non-financial debt as a percent of GDP, the size of the total output, the size of the economy, 
was 80% in 2009. Now it's 146%. Led by China, China's private non-financial sector debt to GDP has gone from 120% in 2009 to over 210% in June 2017. More than 70% of countries have non-financial debt outstanding that is higher than their overall nominal GDP. And as debt levels get higher, the economy slows because more and more money needs to go to paying interest and principal payments and not as much is available to buy things or to invest in capital projects. And this, this is kind of kind of blows my mind when we think about this. All debt is someone else's asset. Somebody owns that debt. They're getting it. They're getting interest in principal payments. So we have all this paper wealth, these assets. People own bonds, paper wealth, somebody else's liability. And we're, it's like monopoly money. We're trading all this paper going back and forth. And the pile and pile of debt keeps going higher and less goes to things that contribute to the real output, the goods and services in the economy. And one of my questions is, is how high can it get? How much debt can the, the world support in terms of nominal GDP? It's 150% now. China's over 200%. I don't have an answer to that, but it's something that we monitor, and it'll show up in economic trends. If it becomes apparent that the private sector is having difficulty servicing the debt, the default rates will go up. We'll see it in PMI data, in terms of surveys, business surveys. They'll just say business isn't as good because people are they're not spending because they're having to spend the money on higher interest payments on their existing debt. So the bottom line is, yeah, I think we're in a bond bear market, that we're in a period where investors are reassessing. Do they want a higher term premium? Do they believe inflation will come in higher? We see rising rates, and it's possible we could get rates of 4%. And then we'll see how the private sector handles those higher rates. And perhaps at that point, central banks have to start reducing rates again as we enter into a potential recession. And then, again, start buying bonds again, taking some of that paper money, those paper liabilities, that paper wealth, not not literally currency in terms of paper currency, but just reducing the supply of bonds, again, as part of quantitative easing. Fascinating stuff. I don't know how to end. That's why we have to monitor it. But that's episode 191. Get show notes for the links I've shared with you at moneyfortherestofus.com by signing up for my insider's guide. I'll send you a free email. I guess all emails free. I'll send you an email each week with a summary article, other valuable contents, invites to Money for the Rest of Us meetups, around the country, and that's at moneyfortherestofus.com, or you can text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. 
everything I share with you in this episode has been for general education, not considered your specific investment situation or how much risk you want to take. That's just no investment advice here. This is just education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.